Well, this morning we continue our series called Follow Me. And I have to tell you, it's been one of the most exciting series I've done in a long time. I think this has been building in my personal life for a very, very long time, wanting to address the issue of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow the will of God. As we stated last week in our preface before our time in the Word, Whenever Christianity saturates a culture like Christianity has done here in the United States of America, it seems inevitable that the culture then also saturates Christianity and begins to shape it in what it desires it to be rather than what God intended it to be. And it begins to distort, and then often you go through that distortion and you discover that you've lost its original form. You don't really know what it looks like anymore. And I think it is interesting that over the last year or so, so many Christians have been asking themselves the question or asking the question uh, to their pastor or even calling into radio shows asking, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now you would think that would be a no-brainer. But the culture has saturated Christianity and it has formed it into a system that is no longer all about Jesus, but unfortunately now it has become all about us. And that's a bad system to have. It hasn't worked in our world, and yet we try to adopt it into the church. And as the culture changes the church and the church allows the culture to change it, we lose our identity in Jesus Christ because we, don't, uh, we no longer know who we are. Isn't it interesting that as our culture moves farther and farther away from God, the more confusion there is in the hearts and the minds of individuals concerning their identity and who they are? And, and we go from physical down to sexual orientation, etc. But there's more and more and more confusion each and every step that we move away from God and His design and His plan, etc. The confusion becomes overwhelming. And the same thing is true for the church. So to address this issue, we started the series, Follow Me by looking at statements where Jesus invited individuals to follow him, but then qualified that invitation in some manner or some form. And in each case, those qualifications cause the individual to have to consider the cost of what it's going to require of them before they follow Jesus. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that we do anything to earn our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a free gift. It is something that we appropriate by faith because it's been offered to us through grace. But following Jesus Christ, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, will cost you everything. So the question that many then ask, can I simply be a believer in Jesus without having to commit to that whole discipleship, that whole following aspect of Jesus? Well, many want to say yes, but that seems to be incredibly inconsistent with the Bible. As people became believers in Jesus Christ, they were transformed. They became new creations. Their hearts desired transformed from the inside outward. And what they had no desire to do previously, they had a complete desire to do afterwards. 
They wanted to follow Christ. They wanted to seek after Him after being born again, after experiencing that new birth, that new life that He gives. And the New Testament epistles follow that exact same pattern that those who truly believe in Jesus and have been born again will have the desires to follow after Him, to desire the things of God. You know, if someone came to you that you didn't know very well, maybe you met them for the very first time, and they said to you, after discovering that you're a believer in Christ, they said to you, well, so am I. But as you got to talk with them, you discover that they really don't have a heart for the things of God at all. You ask, well, what church do you go to? I don't go to church. I love God, I just can't stand his people. Hmm. Well, do you read the Bible? No, I, I don't really read the Bible. Um, you know, I'm not really sure that that's God's word. I think that's just something, a mere product of man. Hmm. Well, do you pray? No, I don't pray. I don't know what the purposes of it is. Well, do you live as Christ prescribed in his word? Meaning, do you obey what he has asked? Well, no, not really. I don't know if that's absolutely necessary. I would have to say at the end of that kind of conversation, how then can you say you actually believe in Jesus? I don't know about you, but when people encountered God in the Bible, they had one of two reactions. Either they were completely obliterated and transformed, I think of Isaiah when he saw God for the very first time. That's what you call obliteration. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He couldn't stand the sight and the knowledge of his sin in the presence of a holy God. Peter said to the Lord, I am not worthy of you, Lord. Not at all. The first time that was ever displayed. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But then you had others that completely rejected They completely walked away. That nominal idea of a Christian wasn't really displayed in the Bible. And Jesus kind of summed it up this way. Either you're for me or you're against me. I always get very leery when someone tells me, yeah, well, I'm on that Christian fence, you know. You know what that means to me? That they think they have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. It usually means that they have too much of God in them to enjoy the world, and they have too much of the world in them to enjoy God, so they're useless all the way around. I was hoping that the Follow Me series would push us into that complete devoted f- desire to follow after Jesus Christ. And as we've been working through the Synoptic Gospels, looking at each and every occasion that Jesus said, follow me, and then qualified it, we now come to the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, where we're going to find three occurrences where that invitation to follow me has once again been offered. And this morning we are going to discover that it is going to be wrapped within what is called biblical imagery. And if you've ever had an opportunity to study biblical imagery, you will discover that God is an incredible painter. He loves to use imagery to describe for you and I, in our finite positions, infinite truths about God. 
He gives us visual cues, visual uh, comparisons that will help us and allow us to understand in our finite state the infinite nature of what he wants us to know and to understand. But we are also going to be introduced into what's called a meta-narrative. It is a narrative that is umbrelling everything that the Bible has to say. Meta-narratives are one of those things that in our current culture are very objectionable. People are very uncomfortable when it comes to the idea that a meta-narrative is over their personal life or existence. Meaning that there's something else going on that they have no control over, but yet they are still subjected to it. And today, if you have discussions with people, you will notice that things like meta-narratives are avoided altogether. Don't, th- don't confine me. Don't limit my liberty by such a statement such as this, that all the world has fallen into sin. That's a meta-narrative. It's not just confined to one person. It's, that person may or may not agree with that statement, but that meta-narrative is something that is placed upon that individual that would require them to consider what is being said. They don't like that. They think that inhibits their freedom. Number one objection to God today is found in the meta-narratives co- uh, uh, conveyed within the Bible. Now you can sound really smart the next time you're in Starbucks and you're talking to somebody. So we're going to be introduced to biblical imagery. We're going to be introduced to a a meta-narrative that you may not have considered previously. And it all begins in a statement made by Jesus that is contained in one of the I am statements, the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus uses imagery to allow people to know who he is, his character, what he's all about, and what he requires of them by using different uh, pictures, symbols, metaphors to explain to the individual who he is. And sometimes these biblical imageries carry so much weight that even the world itself adopts them. And the Biblical imagery that we are going to be dealing with this morning is darkness and light. Darkness and light. I don't care what culture you go to. If you were to speak in the context of darkness, it would always be equated with what? Go ahead, shout it out. Evil, Satan, the devil. It's never a good thing. Darkness is always known as a negative. If you talk about light, you would get what? Goodness. God, maybe. uh, So forth. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, before the internet, before Netflix, before Hula Plus, we had to watch regular over-the-air TV. And I watched Channel 9, and I used to love the Westerns on Sundays afternoons because uh, they were so much fun to watch. And I always know who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. For the bad guys wore what color hats? Black hats. The good guys wore what color hats? 
white, exactly. The Lone Ranger never came out you know, with a dark hat. It was always a light hat. If it was a, a medieval adventure, the knight would be black knight, would be the bad guy, and the white knight would be the good knight. Even today in our most current modern Hollywood dramas, there is this contrast between darkness and light. You know, maybe some of you are going to go see the last installment of The Hobbit. I think there's been 43 of them. And it's a conflict between darkness and light. And maybe if you go, you see the new trailer for the new Star Wars that is coming a a year from now. And it's like, really, you had to show me that now? Now it's all I can think about, you know? And one of the incredible imageries is where they introduce that the dark side of the force is reemerging, and then comes the light. You know, this contrast, this imagery, it is based in the most fundamental understanding of the Bible darkness and light. Hundreds of times they are interwoven throughout the Old and New Testament. And to understand that imagery allows us to understand this statement, this proclamation that Christ makes at a very unique time, a very specific time, one of the seven I am statements. That I am is meant to be equated with the exact same statement that was uh, uttered from the burning bush when Moses asked, Who shall I say sent me, uh, sends me? And God said, The great I am sends you. I am who I am. And now Jesus is defining that for us because he is the great I am incarnate in the flesh. And he makes this statement that we find here in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 12. And this is the only verse that we'll be looking at to launch us into our study this morning because within it contains a promise to those who will follow him. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father, we come before you right now. We pray that our heart and our mind are open to your spirit as you teach us your word. Father, let us not miss the implications and the impact of this proclamation, Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, and we ask that you would lead us and guide us in our time of teaching and of worshiping you through the word. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Bible, darkness and light are summarized in one of three ways. I'm going to summarize a week-long journey that I took looking at every passage of the Bible that refers to darkness and to light. I'm going to sum it up for you right now. It means ignorance or understanding. Darkness meaning ignorance and understanding meaning light. Number two, sin and righteousness, or evil and good. Darkness, of course, representing sin, light representing righteousness. And death, eternal separation, is found in darkness, and life in the presence of God. So in the light of God, we find that life, as stated here in our word. Those are the three most common contrasts that are found throughout the Bible. I just saved you a week's worth of work. 
Jesus makes a proclamation that as we were going through the Gospel of John, I illustrated for you because I think the timing of the statement is crucial to the understanding of it. From chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 of John's Gospel, in conjunction with the harmonization of the synoptic Gospels, I agree with those scholars who, who say that Jesus spoke this while he was in the outer court of the temple, based on the scriptural evidences that we have, during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was an incredible celebration for the Jewish people. As they worship God and thank God for leading them through the wilderness so faithfully. And as God led them through the wilderness so faithfully, during the day he led them by a, pil- a cloud, a pillar of cloud, and at night by a pillar of fire. And so to memorialize that, to remember that, in the outer courts of the temple, they would light enormous lamps. And you can find this in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish writings concerning procedures and practices of the Jewish faith at that time. In the Sukkah, which is a book of it, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Way too much time on my hands. They would light these enormous lamps that would illuminate a section of the outer court. And to memorialize the wandering in the wilderness and the faithfulness of God leading them by that pillar of fire during the night when they were the most vulnerable, where they couldn't see where they were going. And in that pillar of fire was direction, it was leading, it was protection. They would memorialize that through the lighting of these enormous lamps. And they would remember how God was faithful as they followed him. As they followed him in the presence of that pillar of fire. The scholars believe, and I agree with them, that Jesus made this proclamation when the sun was going down and the lamps were being lit He cried out, I am the light of the world. And notice what he says after that. He who follows me. This would work completely, perfectly within the context of that that backdrop, of that setting. And even if we didn't have that, we would still have an understanding of what Jesus was saying. But I agree that if we do our homework... God has given us enough information through the scriptures themselves and in extra biblical writings to allow us to understand the timing of these events. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you will find the working out of the Feast of Tabernacles just perfectly. I I see this completely. Not that Jesus was going to be the light just to them, as the pillar of light was for the children of Israel who walked through the wilderness. Now he proclaims prominently, I am the light of the world. You think this got people's attention? I do. Because that I am statement would have been equated. Now, I also have further evidence of this showing you that in the seven I am statements, Jesus often referred back to Moses. In fact, earlier in chapter 7, we have the um, understanding that when Jesus called himself the bread of life, he immediately uh, compared himself to the manna and that which Moses had given them. 
And Jesus is saying, if you are going to remember the light that led you through the wilderness here at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, understand that I am now the light of the world. And if you will follow me, you will not walk in darkness. A definitive statement. It's not going to happen. That's the Greek rendering. If you follow me, you will not. It's not going to happen. You're not going to walk in darkness, but you're going to walk in the light. Do you see the imagery? And then Jesus pulls out this contrast of darkness and light. What is interesting to me is that through the Old Testament, when you look at the terms of darkness always equated with evil, then you compare it to light, there are two prominent themes that come forward throughout the Old Testament concerning the light that is mentioned. Number one, it is mentioned for the person of God. And number two, it is mentioned for the Word of God. And as Jesus called himself the light, understand that the Jewish minds and the Jewish thinkings were probably considering verses like Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is the light, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. But it was also a metaphor used for his word. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or Proverbs 6.23, For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of the discipline are the way of life. So this concept of light, equated to God himself and to God's word, is now coming in, summer, in a summarization, in a culmination, in the embodiment of one person. Jesus. Is that fair to do? Absolutely. He was God. He is God. And notice that from the very beginning of his introduction, John introduces Jesus as the coming of the what? The Word of God. Notice what he says here at the beginning of John's Gospel. I'll read it for you. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him uh, was not anything made that was made. And then he goes on. There's the Word. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. It's all culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. This concept of light that was equated to God, that was equated to His Word, is now found in the individual as He says, I am the light. Specific, singular. I am the light. Not one of many lights. I am the light, not only to my people, but to the world. That's what he's saying at a very prescribed moment, I believe, as he stands there in the temple when they are remembering the faithfulness of God as he led them through the wilderness in that pillar of light. 
If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 quickly, you will notice that one of the very first prophecies that Matthew lists is a prophecy that is found in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And you know that chapter in Isaiah because it starts out with, Unto us a child is born. What an appropriate verse for this time of the year. But in that section, in verse 2 of Isaiah 9, there is this promise that Jesus equates to himself. Verse 15. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Nephali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In verse 17, the light has dawned and the beginning of his preaching begins with these words. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus, summing this all up now, the light that you knew to be God, the light that you knew to be his word, the promise of a blinding light coming on to the people, Matthew 4, reiterating Isaiah 9-2, all sums up Jesus Christ. And then he says these words, and again I will read them to you. Again Jesus spoke them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And there's that invitation that brings us to our point this morning. That invitation to follow him, that if you will follow him who is the light, you will not walk in darkness, certainly not walk in darkness, and you will have the light of life. Now, understanding what darkness and light means in its in generality and its continuum through the Bible will help us to understand what Jesus is actually saying. If we follow Jesus Christ, we have the light of life. And in that light, we then move from ignorance to understanding. We then move from sin to righteousness we then move from death to life. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what he is saying, if we will follow him. We have the promise that we will not walk in darkness and that we have the promise that we will, that we will have the light of life. Today people don't understand the ignorance that they are actually uh, within. They don't understand it because they are surrounded by it. The whole world is under the blanket of darkness. The ruler of this world has blinded the eyes of those who are not in Christ. And their only place of comparison is found with others who are also in that same darkness. If you are in a room with a person, uh, with several people, let's say, and it's been dark that entire time, you're not going to know that it's dark. You're going to think that's the norm. Because from the moment you were born, you were in this room, this is the way it's always been, this is the way you've always known it. And what people do, 
is that they tried to understand the world, life. They tried to understand themselves and everything that is around them through the limited understanding that they have based upon their collective position. Don't ask me to repeat that again. They don't get it. But let me ask you a question. When you became a Christian and the Spirit of God resided in your heart and your eyes were open, everything looked differently, didn't it? As you began to grow in the Word of God, you began to see things as God sees things. Which I would argue is actually the true reality, isn't it? Reality isn't what we have created as we wandered within this darkness and the conclusions we've come to. It can't be reality because we are, we are dismissing the greatest component of it all, and that is God. But when we take a step back, and then we allow God to change us from the inside out, when we become born again because we've come by faith and repentance to the Lord, and Christ is now our Savior and Lord, we are renewed, we are a new creation in Him. And because we are a new creation, we begin to see things as they truly are. Because we begin to see things as God sees things, as we read His Word and we learn His Word, etc. The same thing goes with sin. With sin. Today, people don't know what sin is any longer, do they? Because all they are doing is comparing their actions with the actions of others around them. And as long as they can find someone who is worse off than they themselves, someone has, who has done something even more heinous than them themselves, they're fine. They think that they're okay. They are convinced that they are a good person. But when we back up, and when we start reading the Bible, and especially God's use of the Old Testament law to show us our sin, we repel, don't we? we begin to say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. Holy cow. You know, have you ever asked yourself why you stand in front of a mirror? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever noticed that there are some people who just can't pass up a mirror? They just have to stop, even though they may have stopped just five feet earlier to look in another mirror. Every time I seem to go to the mall, I always wind up behind the one person who wants to stop in every mirror thinking that that mirror is going to tell them something different from the mirror before. You know, they stop at the first mirror. Holy cow, Christmas was good to me. I packed on a few pounds. But then they go to the next mirror and they're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not as bad as I thought. This is much more slimming. And then they go to the next mirror. It's one of those distorted mirrors where it's all out of whack. They have one down at Navy Pier, and it doesn't matter how many times my family goes down to Navy Pier, we always stop in front of this mirror so we can see ourselves stretched and deformed. But are any one of those three mirrors, if it's giving us three different perspectives of ourselves, is it reality? Do we really see ourselves for who we truly are? See, I say this because the Bible says it's a mirror. That as you look into it and begin to read it, you see yourself for who you truly are, and then you can see where you are at error, or where things aren't where they need to be, or what is sin in your life. And then you should make those changes necessary. 
But, you know, our ignorance, our sin is all enveloped in the darkness in which we are in. We compare one to the other and death and life. Just because someone has physical life, let me ask you a question. Are they actually truly living? Are they living? And my answer to that would be no, they're merely existing. I didn't know what life was until I came to Jesus Christ. Until he brought me to him and I surrendered myself to him. I didn't know what life really meant until that moment. I never thought I would enjoy the life that I have today. I can honestly say everything that I have has been a result of God and his hand. I've come to give life in that more abundantly. People are just merely existing today. And I'm going to use this really. When people tell me that their concept of hell is this, well, we're in hell right now. Wait a minute. Whoa. It might have been very bad for you. You might have gone through great difficulties, but I hate to tell you this. It's only going to get worse. For you and I who are Christians, this is the worst it's ever going to get. Did you realize that? To to us who are believers in Jesus Christ, the difficulties that we experience during this lifetime of ours are the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. But for someone outside of Christ, someone who doesn't believe in Him, this is the best it's ever going to be for them. That's something that we seriously need to consider. The psalmist wrote about knowing, he said this, They have neither knowledge nor understanding because they walk about in darkness All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Or Ecclesiastes says this about the darkness prevailing to their ignorance. Then I saw that there was no more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is no more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. When it talks about sin, notice this, what John wrote. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Or Paul, when he wrote in Romans thirteen twelve through 14, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, nor sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And then when it talked about death, Jesus said it this frankly. He says, and the, they cast off the worthless servant into utter darkness in the place where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth, Matthew twenty five thirty. So we see the translation from ignorance to understanding, from sin to righteousness, from death to life. And you ask yourself the question, why don't more people embrace Jesus? Well, he told us after one of the most uh, popular verses that anyone would ever quote, John 3.16. Have you read a little bit further, though? If you turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 3, look at this with me. Maybe you've never seen the progression of the thought that John is articulating for us, starting with the most blessed verse of the Bible, John 3.16. But notice where he goes next 
Just immediately after that. In John chapter 3, we begin with, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we would all say, Amen to that. We would even continue in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verses 19 through 21 are the most neglected in this passage. And this is the judgment. Notice what Jesus says here, immediately following that most blessed verse of His coming and the love displayed there within. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because of what? Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, not, does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you ever notice that progression? The blessed coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ encapsulated in verse 16. He then goes on to immediately tell us, but the world is shrouded in darkness and the people love darkness more than they love light and they want light and therefore they are going to reject. They're going to turn away because their deeds are evil. But you and I who are in Christ have passed. We no longer walk in darkness. Ignorance, sin, death. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we walk in understanding. We walk in a righteousness. We walk in life. Notice what Peter says about knowing after coming to Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In John twelve thirty five through 36 So Jesus said to him, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. When it comes to righteousness, moving from ignorance to understanding, moving from sin to righteousness, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And a little further in Ephesians 5 verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, drag them out into the light. And Paul wrote one more time in Romans 13, 12 through 14. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh and to gratify its desires. 
But then we've also moved from death to life. And you and I who are in Christ are no longer merely existing, but we have life and that more abundantly. And so Jesus told us in John 1, 4, in him was life and the light was the life was the light of man. Or John 8, 12, as we have read, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1, 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel of his name. That's why we can rejoice. This is the promise that we have as we follow him, that we will no longer walk in darkness, ignorance, sin, and death, but we will walk with the light of life. And that light of life contains understanding. You and I can know who God is and we can worship, worship Him rightly. Number two, we can live righteously. No longer do we need to be in bondage to our flesh and to the sin that it desires. Now we have new life and we can be free from those things. The old life is dead and the new life has come. And death and life we have the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ, which starts the moment that you and I become a follower of Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ. That's when eternal life begins. I want to conclude this morning by taking your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you turn there with me. Because I want you to read these verses, not only this morning with us together, but also as you consider and go forward from our time together this morning. And I want you to consider these words as Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians. Speaking of those who do not know the Lord, in their case, the God of this world, verse 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the what? The what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves and your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness. What is the possibility of light shining out of darkness? Zero apart from God. Zero apart from God. If you look at religions around the world today, light is often magnified to a deity in and of itself. It is not necessarily light itself. It isn't light itself that we worship. It's the creator of that life. It is the one who is that light that we worship. For he has created a light to shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I began this morning talking about biblical imagery, so I'm going to cut to the chase and I'm going to give you the end before the beginning. They seem to do that a lot in films today, don't they? They show you the end and then they say, six months earlier. Everything was in darkness. 
And God said the very first act of creation was what? Let there be light. And then sin affected all of creation at the fall of man. Death entered in and darkness once again began to umbrella and to engulf the world. And as the darkness was engulfing the world, at some of the most darkest points in history, God kept giving glimpses of light throughout the Old Testament saying, One is coming. One is coming. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. One is coming. And the darkness continued to shroud the earth. One is coming. And Isaiah cried out in the songs that he wrote. He's going to be bruised for our iniquity. He's going to carry the governments in the world on his shoulders. One is coming. One is coming. And then a moment, at a moment of almost complete obscurity, when the darkness had enveloped the world, at a moment in time when no one was considering, there was rumblings, there was stirring, that something was going to happen and occur. For God had been silent for 400 years. For 400 years, God had been silent. And then something happened. Something incredible happened. It's as if God took his own finger and poked a hole through the canopy of darkness around the world and a beam of light shined from his glory not on the capital of Jerusalem or the center of the world which was Rome at that time. But that light shined as a beam of the glory of God, not in a place of prominence, but in a place of obscurity and humility, a barn. And specifically upon a manger. And the one who lied within that manger. It was the light, the star that herald the coming of the Messiah. Think of the imagery, the darkness enveloping the earth, the whispers of one who is coming, the open proclamation that Messiah was going to come 400 years of silence and then bam! This light beams on that child. And then 30 years later in the court of the temple under the robust lights of the torches lit, you hear that same one say, I am the light of the world. I don't know about you, but that's a great goosebump moment. But let me tell you how it all ends. It's not just merely piercing the darkness. But in the end, in Revelation 22.5, listen to this. And night will be no more. They will... Uh, need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with Him forever and ever and ever. He's not just going to merely pierce the darkness, He's going to remove the darkness permanently in His second coming. But John gives us a warning in his first epistle, and I leave you with these words to consider. 
This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. One who follows Christ will be led into the light and will no longer walk in darkness.